What's up, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Taz. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. Okay, so we've all heard some pretty heinous crimes. But sometimes you just have to ask yourself, is she a victim of her circumstances or just plain players this week are Katie Ratcliffe, victim number one, Anna Marie Clifford, surviving victim number two, and Sharon Lewis Carr, our murderess. Sharon Lewis Carr was born in British Honduras, now known to us as Belize. We couldn't find a set date of her birth or anywhere, but based off of this case and the math doing this case, we were like, okay, she had to have been born in 1980 or 1981. But then, uh, you know, British Honduras became Belize, gained their independence in September of 1981. And then I read somewhere that she was a Sagittarius. So I'm assuming that it's like December. I'm going to guess December of 1980. And that's what we're going to go to for the context of this case. Okay, everybody. So she grew up in a little shack with her sister and her brother. And literally it was a shack. Her mom, dad, sister, brother, no walls. Everybody just living there together. Her father was a really abusive alcoholic. And her mother was, well, she was mean as hell too. She was a hateful woman. And Sharon and her siblings, they experienced a lot of violence from their parents. They were getting burned by cigarettes. Mom would burn them with hot water. They would, uh, she would put pepper on, like if they had wounds, she would put pepper on their wounds, on their genitals. She would put pepper to punish them. This was all happening at the hands of mom as like anger, discipline, things like that. So Sharon and her siblings, they really had to kind of look out for themselves. They were responsible for finding something to wear. They were responsible for finding something to eat. They were responsible for taking care of themselves because mom and dad, they were also doing whatever they wanted, which most of the time meant arguing and fighting and drinking. After all the siblings were born, dad checked out and left mom to raise the kids on her own. And she was like, okay, I got these kids, got to figure out what to do. Just so happens, she found somebody to fall in love with. A man from Britain. Yes, that's right. A British man. And she said, great, I'm in love, you're in love. Take me and my babies to the UK. And that's exactly what he did. Now that Sharon, her siblings, had a new stepdad and they've gone to the West, you know, everybody was pretty optimistic about what life was going to be over in the UK. I mean, this is a very... It's the UK. UK is, you know, a very advanced society. I mean, they've got technology. They've got schools. A better way of living in the UK versus Belize at the time. And they were going with somebody that had a little money. And this was her first time, her and her siblings, this was their first time ever attending school. Ever. Not Which is you. crazy. I mean, but think about where the country was going old? through at the time. They're like nine, ten. Do you know how hard that would be to start school at the age of ten? Right. Shh. Like you don't even know what the proper how to act because in pre K you learn how to act in clo- in school. It's where they teach you how to learn how to 
raise your hand, sit down, and don't act up and listen to the teacher when they're talking. You learn that in pre-K at three. Right. And then all the way at nine, ten, you're supposed to all of a sudden know how to do that after your life has been trying to survive, stealing to have clothes, stealing to have food, making it by when you can. That's a big your head above water. And mama's already beating your ass and burning you with cigarettes. That's a big transition. Yeah. Once she started school in Surrey, her teachers described her as charming and refreshing. She started to make friends and even joined the basketball team. Everything was going great. And, you know, she's like around 10, you know, as we said, her life has been not the easiest, not the smoothest. And this is like a refreshing year for her, too. But later at the age of 11, she just started to rebel. I mean, we maybe can assume it was like a culture shock, of course, going from poverty to at least a comfortable middle class, right? Mm-hmm. Like she lived in a shack and now she has an estate. So, and there's like, like we said, she she skipped all the handbooks on how to go through everything. Mm-hmm. So she, she, she skipped the introductory classes to show you all the things. You can't just jump into school at 10. That's crazy. That's so, crazy. She's struggling. And rightfully so. And it didn't help that her mom and stepdad were fighting all the time at home. And, like, things started to get really bad. And her mom was the main aggressor. And so then they saw that her school life started to mimic her home life. She wasn't turning into her work, but she was also getting into fights. She just started smoking weed. And, you know, I know some of y'all, I know some of y'all have, but 10 is very young to be smoking weed. 10, 11 is very young to be smoking weed. They just be like, well, I started when I was 13. You are still... Young. Uh, uh, yeah. Tazzy was very no drugs when we were in high school, y'all. She was very Listen, no weed. My mind is a beautiful thing. And I said my mind is still developing. But as soon as I graduated and <laughs> my mind finished developing, I was with the shits. <laughs> Just let your mind finish growing. Sharon's stepdad was sick of it. He's ready for a divorce because the mom wouldn't stop wilding out on him. Like, she was really... Going crazy. So he comes home one day, and Sharon's sitting at the table. Her mom's cooking. Her stepdad's like, look, can't do this no more. This is not the marriage that I want. Let's get a divorce. And the mom gets pissed. She's not having it. They get to arguing. The fight continue. He's like, this is why I want a divorce. Because it's always this with you. We can't never have no peace. And what she do? She's going to take a boiling hot pan of oil and throw it on him in front of Sharon. And Sharon's looking. He's screaming in pain. But he also catches a good of Sharon. He's like, she didn't flinch. She wasn't scared. I'm sitting there burning alive. And she's just like, y'all know Color Purple. When Silly was watching Mr. Cook, that was Sharon <laughs> sitting at the table watching her dad, stepdad get fried alive. But, I mean, I guess this wasn't out of the norm for her since she was punished by having cigarettes put out on her and having Violence pepper in her Violence is what panties. she's seen all the time. Right. So she was like, nigga, <laughs> I guess we in it together, huh? If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere. Where you're listening right now, you can have your podcast there. I promise, for real. And it's free. And you can make some money off of your podcast for free. Free money. Free money is out there. Just go get it by starting your podcast today. There's also this documentary 
very white documentary that said Sharon's mom was into voodoo when they lived in Belize. And they said that she carried those practices with her to Surrey. And she said that they believed in rituals and and gaining power um, from sacrificing animals to gain control over people. And so it's rumored or it's said that Sharon also believed this, and that's what fueled her demonicness. They said that Sharon, like her mother, was also deep into voodoo, which, like, Belize is part of the Caribbean. Voodoo is very prominent there. So, of course, her stepdad followed through with that divorce. And after the divorce, um, started to see some more strange behavior Going around the neighborhood, there were pets going missing. Hamsters, cats, dogs. And not only were they missing, but when they were found, they were decapitated in trash. Like, who does that? And everybody was like, I bet you it's Sharon. Matter of fact, I know it's Sharon. Because she was terrorizing the neighborhood anyways. Right. She would intimidate other people. I heard that she, she was cutting their heads off with, like, a garden spade, which at that point seems very difficult. And so, like, it took some time, and she, like, really reveled in it. And, you know, this was never proven, but neighborhood talk is neighborhood talk, you know? Mm -hmm. So, at this point, Sharon's 12 years old. She didn't have many friends at school, and she started to carry knives on her person and other household weapons in her book bags for her defense. But was it, like, for her defense or was it for her pleasure? (laughs) Yeah. So it's June 6, 1992. Like Tazzy said, Sharon is 12 years old. Another part of Surrey, I've been really wanting to say it with a British accent. So in Surrey, there was another girl, a white girl. Her name is Katie Ratliff. And Katie and her boyfriend just broke up. Katie was very sad about this. I mean... Katie's 18 years old. Y'all remember how that shit go. She was distraught. And one of her good Judies was like, hey, girl, you know what you need? You need a night out. Let's stop moping around the house. Forget about this dude. Let's go and party. So Katie reluctantly is like, okay, friend, I'll I'll go out with you. So they end up going to this spot called Ragamuffins. It's a bar, and they were drinking, they were dancing, they were having a great time, little girls' night out. And somehow the two got separated, which is Don't like rule how. number one. Like, if I'm out with you, you better know where I am. <laughs> Which is rule number one is that you leave with who you came with. And if you don't, everybody knows where you are. Like, I need to I need to see you get into the car. I need to know you've made it. No, I just I can't. People, take care of your friends. Yeah. Like, take care of your friends. And just make sure that everybody is safe. Especially, this is in 92. It's even crazier now. Right. Okay? So, somehow they get separated. And Katie, she's drunk. She's trying to get home. She ends up calling her ex which is a very drunk move to try to get a lift home, but he doesn't answer. He got a new girlfriend. And so she's just sets out walking. While Katie is walking, a car approaches. And in the car are two men and 12-year-old Sharon Carr. And they're like, hey, you know, you need a ride? We'll give you a lift home. And she's like, oh, thank you so much. And she gets in the call. And when... I don't know. I feel like I've definitely been in situations where, like, I'm really drunk and really disoriented. And as soon as I, like, sense danger, I start sobering up. And Katie was starting to have one of those moments where she was looking around like, "Mm, something in this car ain't right. And so she felt so uncomfortable that she ends up, like, opening the door while the car is in motion and rolls, like, tuck and rolls out of the car. And Sharon, who was in the car with her, 
jumps out of the car as well. Sharon starts chasing Katie, chasing her down an alley, and she finally catches up with her. When she catches up with her, she hits her, she gets Katie on the ground, and then she takes out a six-inch knife and she just starts stabbing and slicing and stabbing and slicing Katie. I read one place that it was like 29 times that she was sliced and stabbed, and then I also heard 32. So most of the injuries were to her chest, her genitals, and to her face. Her lungs were pierced. Her liver was pierced. She was, her face was slashed. Her body parts were unrecognizable. Her genitalia was unrecognizable. Her breasts were unrecognizable, like full cut off, sliced off multiple times. And then finally Sharon's like, okay, I've got to carry this body. Let me go find the dudes that I was with. She goes back. Those dudes are gone. They're gone. the fuck they are? (laughs) This... This is a whole nother level. Sharon then drags her body towards a cemetery and it's like an alley and a cemetery wall. Doesn't do much to cover her up. Runs home, takes a shower, writes in her diary and goes to sleep to get ready for school the next day. The next morning at around 7 a.m., a group of boys actually found her body because it wasn't really hidden. It was completely unrecognizable, like we said, and her body was half naked. Her clothes were ripped. When the medical examiner got her body, he said the only positive thing that he could say about this case was that she died pretty quickly. So most of the wounds that are on her body, she was actually dead and didn't feel it and didn't suffer through it. That's sad when that's the only thing that you can say. Yeah. So Surrey was a pretty safe place at this during this time. So investigators were really confused. I mean, of course, they had carjackings. Of course, they had like cities that I mean, they're a city, right? Carjackings, a little bit of mugging here and there, maybe a purse snatch there, but not somebody being mutilated in the alley. Right. And so they're like, bro, what are we going to do? They go to ragamuffins. They talk to the um, the bar. They talk to the nightclub staff and they're like, was she here? Did you see anything out of the ordinary? And they said, no, we didn't see anything out of the ordinary at all. We, she was dancing all night with some girls. She was drinking a lot. Yeah, sure. She came to the bar. She paid a tab, but nothing out of the, we didn't see her leave with anybody suspicious. We didn't see any guy, creepy guy on her, anything like that. So the police really didn't have anything there, right? So they tried to do a profile, a criminal profile. And you guys know that criminal profiles are popular and especially in the 90s trying to figure out how to solve cases. And crazy enough, as brutal as this crime was, there was like no DNA evidence, no sweat, no no fibers, no hair. There was no type of DNA evidence. So it was getting really hard for Which police to- Because niggas right? try to not leave DNA evidence and still leave DNA evidence. And, and I mean, I'm thinking- like not not a dried piece of sweat, nothing like, you know, and she wasn't trying to cover it up. It, it just so happens that they couldn't find any DNA evidence. So they are trying to rack their brains. Police are like, okay, who could possibly be doing this? Based off the nature of the crime, the brutality of the crime, how her body was drugged, they're thinking that it was a white man in his 30s. So they narrow in their search on white men in their 30s that may have a history of killing animals that maybe gets off on the sexual nature uh, on sexual crimes because it seemed to be a sexual nature because her genitalia was cut up and 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 they're like whoever this is like we need to find him asap and so they end up making a composite sketch which I don't know how you make a composite sketch over the facts 30 year old white man killed pets 
likes has a sexual nature towards crime, but they did. Have you seen the uh, composite sketch, friend? No. Is it out there? Yes. I said, I figured that you didn't, and I was going to send it to you. Oh, I'm going to send it to you right now, and I want to hear your thoughts live in and living color. Do, 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 do. You can do what you... I'm texting it to you. One and a two. In living color. In living color. Look at that. So that's who they came up with. Okay. Very white male. <laughs> I mean, this could be any old it could be Adam. Anybody. <laughs> it, it is could a be white any man. Paul, he doesn't look any crazy. Sean. He looks like a normal white man. Right. I mean, I've seen 50 of them literally today. <laughs> Those are who they're looking for as suspects. And they weren't finding anything. They weren't getting anywhere in the case. And Katie's case quickly turned cold. On June 7th, 1994, exactly two years after finding Katie's body, Sharon was at comprehensive school in Canberra where she had a reputation that preceded her. She had fake friends who hung around for protection so they didn't get beat up. And everybody else was scared of her, you know? Nobody wanted to fuck with Sharon. You don't know what she's going to do. So one day, Sharon asked a classmate who was 13-year-old, Anne-Marie Clifford, if she could help her find something in the bathroom. She said she had lost some money. And Marie was kind of like, eh, do I really want to go with you? Because, you know, how the fuck would I help you find some money? But also, please don't beat me up. So I guess I'll go look. So she goes to the bathroom with Sharon. She bends down to look. And as soon as she turns her back, Sharon pulls out a four-inch knife and starts smiling and tossing it back and forth hand-to-hand, which at that point, I'm losing my shit. I'm screaming for help because this nigga's fucking playing. You fucking playing. Tossing that shit. Like you standing on top. Right, you standing on top of me like a movie. Oh, no. Right. The fuck you been watching? Then all of a sudden, she lunges at Anne-Marie and begins stabbing her. Stabs her in the lungs multiple times. But the attack was interrupted because a group of girls came into the bathroom. And Sharon just runs off. But she was caught before she could leave the school grounds. And the police and the ambulance rush over to help Anne-Marie. And fortunately, she survived. But she definitely had a long road ahead of her, right? I read somewhere that she was having, like, nightmares. Like, Sharon was in her nightmares. Oh, I just... When I got to this point of, like, researching and hearing her say that, I said, so Sharon is like, <laughs> Sharon's like Candyman. You got to, you turn on the light three times, you got to say, uh, <laughs> Sharon Lewis Carr, Sharon Lewis Carr, Sharon Lewis Carr. She going to come haunt you. She is She's ready. She's the oogie boogie man. She needs her mm-hmm. own story of America Horror Story. Oh, my gosh, no. I already don't watch that show. It's scary. It's too scary for me. So good. That's what nightmares are made of. Literally, the, she is what nightmares are made of. Sharon was charged with two counts of actual bodily harm, and she pleaded not guilty and decided to go to trial, where she was found guilty. <laughs> and she was sentenced to two years at Bloodwood Hall Young Offenders Institute, which was a juvenile detention center in the U.K., so, while at this Young Offenders Institute, Sharon tried to strangle two of the nurses on two separate occasions. And the two years passed. Sharon's now 16, and it's time for her to get out of juvie. But before she could get out, she got the run of her little mouth because she was feeling big and bad. And, you know, was missing her glory days of when she killed this girl named KR. Of course, 
if nobody else is going to report it, the CEOs who she's telling, or the guards who she's telling, are going to report it, right? The police are like, K-R. She's like, she's saying she stabbed them and did all this stuff. Like, I'm telling you, Sharon Spawn, all her business down the street. I stabbed her. I did that. I loved it. Da 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 da. And they're like, are you crazy? Are you for real? And so the police is like, okay, well, we have a girl, KR, Katie Radcliffe, who was stabbed a bunch of times. So maybe this is something that we need to look into. We need to figure out how to investigate. So the police are like, um, we're just going to need a little bit more to work off of. Let's, you know, get her diary and see what it's saying. And in there, she's like, you know, KR, I did all this shit. Da, 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 da. And they're like, this is crazy. And they're like, but is she fantasizing? Or did she really do this? You know, like, she'd have been 12 at the time. We were looking for mm-hmm. a 30-year-old white man. So, like, like I hear what you're saying, but, like, you know, are we sure, right? They start to interview her. They're like, hey, listen, Sharon, we've got a couple questions for you. What's all this stuff you telling everybody that you killed KR and sliced up KR? Like, who is KR? Tell us some things. And it took no time at all. She starts singing like the Temptations. She gives the police three different stories. But in each one, the fact that remained the same was that she was the one who brutally stabbed Katie. So the police are like, again, you were 12. You could have just heard this story in the news. Got you a little excited in your weird ass head. I don't know. So she tells the police... She took a bracelet off of Katie and kept it as a keepsake. And they was like, hold on a minute. We never put that in the press. How do you know about that? And she's like, because I'm the one who did it, bitch. And I'm like, all right, maybe you are the killer. They didn't immediately arrest her because she's already in juvie. Like, she's already detained, so she's not necessarily a flight risk. And they wanted to go and search her mother's house while she was locked up. The Dean Estate where Sharon used to live. On the way to the Dina State, the police were shocked. One, because they might have just found the murder to this case. Like, they might be closing this case. And at this point, the case is, what, four years old? Four or five years old, yeah. You don't solve cases at this point. So, like, it's feeling like a big win here. But two, we had a suspect for a 30-year-old white man, and it's a 12-year-old black girl. Who the fuck is this chick? They arrive at the estates, and they search Sharon's old room, and they find another diary. But what they also find is Katie's bracelet. So now they know for sure they've got the right person. So after they find their very surprising evidence, they go back to talk to 16-year-old Sharon Carr. They interview her for 27 hours, and again, she was open and willing and ready to talk. She stuck with her three stories that she originally gave. The first story was that she walked behind Katie and she was just a random attack and she just randomly attacked her. The second story was that the two men had raped Katie before she stabbed and killed her. And the third story was the story that you heard at the very beginning, that the two men, she jumped out of the car, she ran after her, she came back and the men were gone. The police, they were like... Okay, we we are ready to arrest her. We are ready to charge her. And they do. And a month after she was arrested for the murder of Katie R., Katie Ratcliffe, she got a lawyer. She recanted all of her statements. And she said that she absolutely had nothing to do with the death of Katie. As they do. Which is crazy because um, nobody was checking for you. 
people always talk about how like we don't care about we don't care about the victims, which we actually do. But like there have been a couple of cases where people have confessed to the crime and then at the last minute they're like, actually, I want to go to trial because I didn't do it. And just uh how the families may feel. Like, damn, she just confessed and now I gotta sit through all the gory details. Just right. put her in prison. Get her out of my face. I think half of the problem is they wanna go through a trial. So y'all can show the evidence and they can get a chance to look at the pictures again. And it's just like to give them that enjoyment and pleasure out of it. It's just That's an interesting thought. I bet she, I'm sure that she did enjoy going through all the evidence. You have to watch. You get to see all of it. You're going to hear the medical examiners talk about how brutally cut up she was. Like she gets to hear just how bad. She how bad it was. It. And, you know, she's writing from memory. But like to go back and revisit this, she's probably reveling in it. Oh, my gosh. And her parents, the family just has to sit there and watch that. March of 1997, Sharon Lewis Carr is on trial for the murder of Katie. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial. Now, the first thing is the jury has to decide if she's going to be charged with murder or if she's going to be charged with manslaughter. So Sharon walks in on the first day of trial. She's wearing a gold chain, a white polo, slacks. Her hair is short. She's looking real, you know, short, curly hair. She's looking like baby Wanda Jean. And during her four-week trial at the Winchester Crown Court, presided by Justice Scott Baker, um, Sharon sat on the dock, which sat on the dock, I found out, is slang for, I guess, being on trial. Maybe like being on the dock, are you going to get pushed off into the ocean. Now I'm thinking of a big boat. Or what's next on the dockets? Yeah. So the prosecution brought forth all the evidence that they had. I mean, the verbal confessions, the written confessions, the bracelet, the diary entries, and they made sure to tell the jury that Sharon literally sat in their faces and told them details about the murder that nobody but the killer would have known. The prosecution, you know, they were up against the insane thought, like this crazy idea that a 12-year-old girl would kill an 18-year-old girl, kill her brutally. Right. Because basically, you know, 18, you're an adult. So it's, it is a child killing an adult. And not even just so brutally, but for no apparent reason. This is a complete right. stranger, unprovoked, literally, or pleasure, or fun. Right. It was a crime of opportunity. You saw her stumbling and drunk on the street and said, great, I can do it. The diaries. We keep talking about the diaries. And they were full of some shit, okay? So here's a couple of excerpts from Sharon's diary. She wrote in there, she would be like, Katie versus Carr. And she wrote it and she doodled it so it almost looked like a cage match fight. So then, like in the media and in the newspapers and stuff, she starts to get the name The Devil's Daughter. And the reasons are due to quotes in her diary because they go even deeper and darker. And she's like... Dreams say the devil is written, twisted life destroyer. Every night I see the devil in my dreams, sometimes even in my mirror, but I realize it was just me and my heart of terror. So like, whew, she's a spooky one, you know? You know, and she's got it documented. <laughs> and like, just them having the documents from the time of the murder till four years later, and there's no change. There was no sign of remorse. Just, she's still living in that. Talking about four years today, and I'm still thinking about you. It's crazy. And then, again, for her parents to have to sit in court and listen to these excerpts, like, even if she showed remorse that day, it's, you had a four-year anniversary where you went and relived that? No. 
and you said that it turns you on, who knows what you were even doing to the thought of to the just murder the of my thought child. of it, right? It's just so no. The defense maintained Sharon's innocence the entire trial. I don't know how you count with all this proof stacked up against you. You know, we have literal diary entries. Um, but I think the diary entry that got the prosecution over the hump of, oh my God, she's 12, is I'm not like one of those pretty girls who breaks down due to a guilty conscience. Through six and a half years of causing people grief, I still haven't found one. And so we see she has no kind of remorse, nothing wrong with what she sees. She really is just almost proud of herself, right? And it's like, we, we know, you know, her mom beat up on her and fucked her up a little bit, but She's now turned into this 12-year-old girl who they call the devil's daughter. And it was a well-earned name, you know? So there were seven men and five women who posed the jury in this trial. They all sentenced her to life in prison for the murder of Katie Radcliffe. So in the UK, when most prisoners are sentenced to life, they'll set a tariff which means that's how much time they need to serve before they can be eligible for parole. The tax to society. Right. <laughs> Sharon's tariff was set for 14 years. And Katie's mom, I love reading um, British stuff and they say mom. Katie's mom, Helen, said she thought that Sharon should hang. And she's like, and I stand by that. She was like, they have no kind of punishment. They took my little girl away from me. She's not going to get married. She's not going to have a life. This is no justice. It's an absolute disgrace. She was sentenced in 1997. By 1998, she has stirred up so much trouble in the prison from fights and just altercations and stuff that they transferred her to a hospital to live and serve her time because there's something wrong, okay? But she didn't want, I think they're a little more strict and rigid maybe with your time and stuff at the hospital. And she didn't want to be in the hospital. She wanted to go play with the other kids, but you can't handle the other kids. I mean, because she was even attacking the staff and just... it. it It wasn't even safe for them to have her there at that point. So she was sanctioned under the Mental Health Act 1983 and transferred to Broadmoor Hospital on June 16, 1998, where she was assessed. And they said that she was actually suffering from schizoaffective disorder. Broadmoor Hospital uh, is is pretty infamous. It has held a lot of patients that are well-known in the true crime sector One of them is the silent twins, which everybody tries to get us to do their case, but they are just creepy. They did not kill anybody. So schizoaffective disorder is a mental health disorder that is marked by a combination of schizophrenia symptoms, such as hallucination or delusions, and mood disorder symptoms such as depression or mania. And that is interesting because I listened on a podcast. I did not get to see it in writing, but I did hear it on a podcast that she was like cutting herself and sta- and cutting herself because she was trying to prove at one of the either hospital or at one of the prisons that she was trying to prove that she did not bleed because she told them that she was a lizard. And my thing is like lizards bleed, right? Some type of blood, I guess. So she was trying to, and so, yeah. So while she was at Broadmoor Hospital, she actually found herself a boo because murderers always find themselves a boo. And her boo was Robbie Lane. Now, Robbie, he was in Broadmoor because um, he beat his mother almost to death and he gouged his mother's eyes out with the handle of a carpet sweeper. 
he said that he stabbed his mother because he was jealous of her love for his sister. Like, you love my sister more than me, so I'm going to kill you. And he's been in Broadmoor since 1996. They met in 1999. They bumped into each other in the recreation area. Remember, I mean, if y'all seen like One Who Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, it was kind of like everybody still gets to interact and see each other a little more than you would in prison. And so they got to hang out, canoodle, cuddle. He told her that, you know, I was, I'm used to play football. And she was like, oh, I like what I see. And their relationship was really strong. And then after nine months, Robbie popped the question, asked Sharon to marry him. You going to be in here forever, baby. I'm going to be in here forever. We might as well be in this thing together, right? Here at the hospital. She said yes. And they were set to get married on July of 2001. Robbie went around telling everybody just how excited he was, how much he was so, he he was about to meet, you know, marry the love of his life. They got their rings from like Argo. I think they said it was Argo, but I looked up Argo and they're really cheap rings. So like, you know, wedding ring costing $150. Um, the guards went out and got it. And just a week before the wedding, they have everything planned. They know that it's going to be like a 20-minute ceremony. They're going to be able to invite the other patients. They're going to be able to invite their family and friends. Like, this is going to be a really nice, quick, lovely wedding. But on the outside of the hospital walls, they wrote an article about them getting married. And you know, there like two killers marrying each other. And one guard brought an article to Sherry. The other guard brought an article to Robbie. And of course, in that article, they're going to describe what crimes that they committed to make them be in this hospital at the first in the first place. And an interesting thing happened. Um, Sharon read about Robbie gouging out his mother's eyeballs. And she said, oh my gosh, is this the man that I'm going to marry? This is horrible. I can't marry this monster. And then Robbie, on the other side of the hospital, read the same article and read about Sharon mutilating Katie Ratliff. And he's like, oh, my gosh, is this going to be who I marry? Is this she going to do the same thing to me? And somehow they both became disgusted. This is the rumor that they became so disgusting with each other, that they became so disgusted with each other that they couldn't even look at each other's faces. And they called off the wedding they returned the little rings, and they never spoke again. If you didn't want to get married, just say that. Because <laughs> you know that you in we you know I know that you in this hospital for something. I mean, but even if it was just plain being crazy, I just can't understand. Like, what was it for Sharon after all the creepy shit she did? Was it that it was his mother? Like, <laughs> I don't understand why they were so turned off by each other. And I don't know what it was for him, like. Anyway, so I just don't understand why you're mad, though. She petitioned and she petitioned. She wanted to get out of this hospital. She wanted to have a chance of life back in the free world. And she wanted her case reviewed by the high court. And the first time she tried, they was like, no, girl, keep your 14 years for your tariff. We're not buying it. But on December 10th, 2003, they presented some more paperwork and decided that they would reduce her tariff to 12 years, and she was relocated to Her Majesty Prison Service. Fast forward to March 15, 2009. Sharon's now 29 years old and eligible for parole. And Katie's mom is in the paper again, and she's like, first of all, we were horrified when her sentence was reduced. Like, how? 
She's like, we just couldn't believe it. The whole family was flabbergasted. But life doesn't mean life anymore, unfortunately. The fact she is now eligible for parole brings it all back up to the surface and forces us to think about it again. I don't feel she should ever be let out because she's a psychopath. She's far too dangerous. She didn't show any remorse at the trial. The family are really concerned she could be out on the street and it could happen to someone else. It's just like I'm serving a sentence myself. My family is serving a sentence. Not a day goes by when you don't think about it. It's not natural for your children to die before you. It's a hard thing to come to terms with. And you just think, why her? Katie was very trusting, and she often used to say to me that I worried too much. She was just a normal, jolly girl. I don't think there'll ever be a time when it's behind me. I will carry this to my grave. It's sad that you have to grow up. And, like, for me, I felt like for a long time I was a very trusting person, but it put me in a lot of dangerous situations. And it's kind of crazy that you can't go into the world just in general with an optimistic point of view because you might fuck around and get murdered. Right. Like, they always, I feel like we hear that about a lot of victims where it doesn't make sense. It's just like, ah, that person was just so trusting and would have helped anybody. And it's like, that might have been the problem. Is that, And that's yeah. why they got them, you know? It's because they would have helped anybody. And that's exactly who they were looking for. Somebody who wouldn't cause no smoke. Fast forward some more. In 2020, after being in prison for 26 years, Sharon and her lawyers launched a legal battle against HMPS, Her Majesty prison service because of Sharon's restrictive prison status. But in 2021, the high court judge, Mr. Justice Julian Knowles, that's a nice name, said Sharon disclosed thoughts of wanting to murder another resident by splitting her head open with a flask and throwing her down the stairs to snap her neck. And for this reason, we're going to deny any relaxation at the HMPS regime, which Sounds like a pretty solid argument to me. Right. At this time, Sharon is 42 years old and is, quote, too unstable, unquote, to be released from Her Majesty Prison in Bronzefield in southwest London, where she is still on restricted prisoner status, which is one of the highest status you can have in the London prison. News reports say that she'll be there forever because her because of her intense relationship with females that turned into violent fantasies. That's very interesting that you say that, friend, because I was going back and forth what you just said about the violent fantasies Because before I say this, because I was going back and forth, and honestly, like, I was trying to fit, and you see the pictures of Sharon, and then we hear about this, you know, if you didn't want to get married, just say that. And her mom putting, and her mom being abusive specifically to Sharon's genitals, like, was Sharon a little gay? And oh, mama didn't like that. For sure. And then and then because of that fantasy, every time that she equated violence, or well, if she equated like lust, she equated violence. And so now you have it. Yeah. Which, which also brings me to another point. Did you know, oh, you don't know that, uh, you do know this, but to the people in the world, did y'all know that Super Nanny has a true crime show? Like the Super Nanny? Y'all be watching that show. And she was going off on, like, is this nature versus nurture? Because in, I, I think Super Nanny is, like, on the platform that she's not going to say. She said that, like, children and evil just doesn't sit with her. And so, like, I think her whole platform is to say that it is nurture and children are born good. That's, like, her her MO. But when she was covering this case, there's a lot of things that happened in her childhood that would make you think, like, mm, are you associating lust for women 
with extreme violence because at home when you had it, it was met with extreme violence. Just things Mm. that make you go, hmm. Now, when a lot of people talk about this case in particular, they they would say that uh, Sharon is UK's youngest murderer. But, okay, technically that's true, but technically that's false. The youngest convicted killer in the UK is Mary Bell of North Cumberland. Um, She was 10 years old and she murdered two preschool boys, but they charged her with manslaughter instead of murder. And Sharon was charged with murder. So that's where that stipulation comes from, which I guess like if somebody was, (sighs) they were so killed at your hands, but I guess in the eyes of the law, your charge is whatever. Yeah. All right. So that is the end of the show. All right, y'all. So it's time for. Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. I ain't do it. But if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. I ain't do it. But if I did, I would have never talked about it. She was in the clear. She was about to be released from Julie. But her big fat mouth got in the way. That's being young and immature and wanting attention and seeking but also, attention. It's being a psychopath because. That's how a lot of them get caught is trying to revel in it, trying to relive their glory days. Gets you every time. I ain't do it, but if I did, you know, if you are in the middle of trying to kidnap somebody and in the first five minutes they get away and the car is in motion, just keep on going. Just keep on. Fuck it. We lost this one. We'll fish later, you know? (laughs) And I don't understand why she would get out of a moving vehicle to run after this girl. We didn't even know her. She was locked in. It was too late. She probably enjoyed the chase. Yeah, probably. And the crazy thing about those two guys, which we didn't mention the story, but the crazy thing about those two guys is they went down and they tracked down those two guys and they asked him, asked them, you know, what were they doing the night and if they knew uh, Sharon. They were completely denied it. And they also said that they had alibis for the night, but their alibis were each other and somehow each other's alibis checked out. I don't know how that works because maybe it's like a London thing because I just don't see niggas in America letting that shit fly. So every time I hear that fact, it's like, hmm. But they were each other's alibi. At least at least we know it works in the UK. I ain't do it, but if I did, I would not keep a diary or draw pictures at all. If and There was this guy in when I was in elementary school and I was nice to him. And a lot of the girls were mean to him. And he was like a bigger guy. He didn't smell so great. And he had a hoodie. And he always wore a hoodie. He was really quiet. And he got in trouble because he drew pictures of some of the girls in our grade, like either killing them or hanging them. And he got into a lot of trouble. Never saw him again. Um, it was I was at a magnet school too. So, you know, public school at least. So, but I wasn't on that picture. But, you know, when kids are doing that, that's... That's a big red flag. When kills when kids are killing pets, that's a telltale sign. Right. Psychopathic behavior. But also like the environment that she was in, your mom her mom was like psychopathic behavior. <laughs> All the men are running, fleeing. Um parole or no parole? Um no parole. She continuously shows no sign of remorse, no sign of calming down. She still like everything was still showing that you're getting into altercations. You're still causing trouble. You're still reveling in this shit. So go be by yourself. Yeah. And she, I know that she's in Broadmoor and I'm, I, we have to, and hopefully she's getting the treatment that she's supposed to be getting, but is she sticking to the treatment? Is she doing what she needs to do? And I just, uh, 
Girl, you need to stay in there. Go ahead and stay in there. And address <laughs> what's really going on. I don't think they've even gotten to the root of her shit. Yeah, not at all. All right, y'all. That's in the show. Let's read some reviews. Let's read some reviews. All right, y'all. This one comes from Kyla. She says, I love this podcast so much. Five stars. I honestly was just scrolling, looking for a podcast I could be loyal to. I was honestly just scrolling and looking for a podcast I could be loyal to and came across this masterpiece. The rest is history. I absolutely love them. Thank you, girl. It's hard to find podcasts you're loyal to. And I listen to podcasts way more than Tazzy does. And I have my strict few that I'm very loyal to. But it takes a while to get on the list. I used to listen before I started this. But ever since I've been in the game, I just don't have the capacity anymore. I'd rather watch TV. Fun fact, y'all. Years and years ago, Tazzy put me onto my first podcast ever. And the rest was history for me. Been obsessed since. You're welcome, friend. Shout out to The Read. (laughs) They're going to be like, oh my God, y'all listen to The Read? This one is, ooh, from Tinky. May I just say that I am not a podcast girl. Never was, never claimed to be. But I started listening to a podcast on my drive to Atlanta one day and came across yours. From that drive to this day, I've not missed one. I love the dynamic between the two of you. And like Mariah, I love Broadway, so I often sing songs with her. The realness that Taz brings to the table is unmatched. The pair of you were destined to do exactly what you're doing. Please keep up the good work and know that we are waiting for you every week with love. I don't know if you want your name on here. I'm just leaving it at that. Thank you, girl. Thank you. Oh, that makes that brings me joy. <laughs> that brings me so happy. All right. So that's the end of our show. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us. You can hit up Tazzy in the emails at sisterswhokillpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to hang out with me on TikTok, you can find us at Sisters Who Kill Podcast. If you want to see the pictures we post of the murderess each week, you can follow us on Instagram at Sisters Who Kill Pod. And if you just want to tweet us, you can find us at Sisters Who Kill. Sazzy, got anything else? Talk to us, we talk back.